We are kind enough to be joined by Dr. Jessica Peck. She is the author of a book called Behind Closed Doors. You've heard her on the program before. Uh, This is a, I've got to tell you, from a parental perspective, this is an incredibly great resource, especially if you have tweens and teens in your home. If yours are younger, you're still going to want to read this and get prepped because as early as age 10, uh, we are seeing some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. It's a guide to help parents and teens navigating through very, very tough. Really, these are issues that are inside and inside of our homes that we are facing every single day. And other families are facing them as well. But we're going to jump into our conversation here with Dr. Peck. Good morning to you, Dr. Peck. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing so great, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Well, I'm excited about this as well. As I shared with you, uh, Jim Striedelmeyer, he is here from Neighborhood Fellowship. He is a pastor, and also his church runs the largest student-run free health care clinic in the nation. So this is a guy who's got a sweet spot for where you are. Uh, and, you know, he sees this type of things that we're going to be talking about all the times, mental health concerns, uh, seeing that and the, the way it manifests ultimately later even in life with homelessness and prostitution and transgender issues and drug use and all of these very, very challenging issues. But I wanted to start with the mental health aspect. When we're looking at adolescents today and younger generations, they are facing things that you and I and Jim did not have to really deal with in the same ways. As much of a blessing is that we have access to so much media information today, it is too a curse. But you have also pointed out in your book that about half of children who are diagnosed with any type of mental health condition actually receive treatment. Now that's alarming because that means the other half go untreated. And we know when untreated mental health issues uh, exist, where those things can lead. So share with me a little bit about the impact of our society on younger generations and adolescents as they come up and what that means for the mental health treatment uh, of these young folks. Well, one of the most common questions I get everywhere I go is, should we be this worried about the mental health crisis? Everything we're hearing on the news and all of this alarmist kind of messaging. And for me as a nurse, it's really important to give trustworthy advice. And what I say is that the mental health crisis is not as bad as people are saying. It's actually worse, Steve. Mm. It's worse. I almost don't recognize my pediatric practice. Looking at what I did 20 years ago and what I did now, it's just almost not even the same profession. And even though Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and it's not new that teens are facing threats, they are facing threats, as you said, that we just simply did not face. There was no cyberbullying or sexting or pornography as we know it today, social justice, uh, gender identity, all of those things that go on and on. Teens were not designed to live at the speed of a smartphone. They have the world's bad news coming to them 
avalanching them in a moment and they can see everything bad going around in in the world in just a moment. The other thing that teens are facing is the pressure to be Insta ready and the pressure of social media. I just saw a story on the news recently about a girl who was riding the subway and just minding her own business on her phone. She had a condition called neurofibromatosis, which gives her little tumors all over her body. Someone videoed her without her knowledge or consent and used two emojis to completely change her life. The first emoji was an emoji with a monkey with its hands over its mouth and a question mark and basically implied, is this girl on a public train with monkeypox? And the video went viral and her sister ended up seeing it. And this completely changed her life. And this is the pressure that our young people are dealing with, feeling that one unguarded moment, one chance encounter could totally ruin them. And they feel like it's the end of the world. So those are the reasons we're seeing skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression. This was going on before COVID. And then we enter COVID where kids are physically isolated, which was an extreme social and emotional injury. And now I'm seeing in practice social anxiety about being in physical settings. Mm. But the good news is we as parents and grandparents and older generations, we can partner our old school social skills with their new world perspective to build a bridge of healthy relationships that will help them to navigate these issues and to be resilient and to find hope and recovery. Well, you know, one of the things that you bring up here around those types of um, disorders, the anxiety disorders, that this type of stuff that we, the world we live in, produces. You you give five major types of anxiety disorders. And what's wonderful, I mean, I feel like I'm in DSM-5 here looking at all this information, but tell us about the five. But then more importantly, I want to address the sixth one, because as you said, that social anxiety is a big piece of that. Sure. So we have to realize that anxiety disorders are the result of a complex interaction of our genes and our environment, things that happen to us, some factors we can control, but some we can't. So the five major types are generalized anxiety disorder. This is just feeling anxious and you don't know why. And a lot of times I think as you know, fellow believers, we really intend well and we will say, what do you feel anxious about? And they genuinely don't know because this is, again, a a complex biological reaction. We have obsessive compulsive disorder. We have panic disorders, which I'm seeing an unprecedented rise in panic attacks. These are really scary looking episodes that can feel like you, honestly, people who experience these experience these feel like it's life-threatening they can't breathe they feel like maybe they're having a stroke or an asthma attack or some catastrophic event we see post-traumatic stress disorder and that can be caused by you know one singular event or it can be complex and caused by multiple and then we have social phobias where that's just a self-consciousness where teens have trouble speaking eating or even drinking in front of others and the post-pandemic separation anxiety 
this is real. You know, Steve, I'm a mom of four teens myself. My kids are 19, 17, 15, and 13, and, and they have access really to a lot of resources. I'm their mom. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing, but I see my own kids struggling with this where they feel more comfortable in digital environments. They feel more comfortable engaging in environments where they're not physically present, and I'll see them say, yeah, let's meet up later, but then they say, should I go, shouldn't I go? And then there's hours of agonizing over whether they go, and then when they go, it's not enjoyable, and this just breaks my heart. As a mom, as a nurse, we really, kids need each other, and we need to be in social connection. Well, Jim, you, as, you know, the lead person here running the the largest student-run free healthcare clinic, you see tons and tons of people. I've been at the clinic. I've seen the throngs of people who are coming. They range in age from infant and newborn all the way up to the elderly. How do you see those types of things manifest in your community? We fortunately have um, some mental health uh, uh Uh, opportunities to take care of folk but um, I wanted to point out that uh, I live in the inner city so anxiety uh, is real because uh, trauma is real and yet I know that even secondary trauma being exposed to what you see on on uh, the screens has an effect. So, uh, doctor, would you mind talking about you know secondary effects um, that that uh, these kids are living through because uh, they they carry around not only what they're dealing with but what ev- the whole world is dealing with. Jim, you bring up a great point, and this phenomenon is actually called trauma dumping. And this means that we dump our trauma on someone else without really asking their permission or getting their consent to talk about these things. Now, this may be from seeing something on social media. We see someone experiencing abuse. We see someone experiencing something traumatic. We see police videos that are released. Or a lot of times for kids, we'll see them as they're more comfortable and talking about their conditions. They may disclose really graphic details of abuse and we have a kid who's watching a video on snapchat or tiktok and all of a sudden they are just inundated with every nitty-gritty detail and that is traumatic and research shows that by experiencing trauma vicariously is sometimes just as harmful if not more harmful than experiencing it yourself. So that's why we as parents really need to come alongside our kids and help and other caring adults in their life and help coach them through these things and say, while it's really good to talk about these things, it decreases stigma, it decreases shame, it lets kids know they're not alone. It's also okay to walk away from a conversation that's harming you. It's also okay to hold up your hand and to say, you know, I'm really not comfortable with where this conversation's going. Can we connect you to someone else or can we talk about something else? That is perfectly okay to do. Well, you know, I want to touch on something in just a second about how well we as parents are equipped to deal with that because many of us 
have not formed healthy coping mechanisms, and we don't even have the capability often to say, I can't be a part of this conversation. So it becomes something very difficult for us to actually model and teach to our teens, isn't it? If you want to influence your teen's worldview, you have to start with viewing the world as they see it. So that's the important thing. We have to acknowledge the realities of the world today as much as we wish, wish it wasn't so. Often as parents, I think we operate in the world we wish our teens were in instead of the world that they're actually in. But Steve, you bring up an important point again because as parents, especially with social media or dealing with these kinds of things, we are really quick to point the finger and try to micromanage our teen's behavior. We say, you need to do this, you need to do that, and without having the, the real-world perspective of what it's really like. And when we do that, I think it's our unhealthy coping mechanism because we want instant gratification as parents. When our teen's behavior is like we want it to be, then that tells us, oh, we must be doing a good job because they're doing all of the right things. But we don't pursue the heart issues. And I'll give you a little example of this. I had a patient in my practice who his mother took his video gaming system away from him where he, we forget in video games, you can connect with other people and talk with them. It's not just about the game, it's about the community. And he actually physically assaulted his mother over this. And I came home and I was talking to my kids about this and the dangers of addiction to electronics. And my son was probably about 10 at the time and he listened very thoughtfully. And finally he said, you know, mom, Facebook is just Fortnite for adults. And I was so convicted because I thought, yes, we have our own way of communicating. You know, Facebook is for old people now, right? So our teens would say, but we justify it. Oh, I'm on my phone because this is for work or this is adult, so it's justified somehow. But if we see unhealthy coping mechanisms in our team, the best way to fix those is to seek our own healing journey. And that is going to make an authentic impact on our kids because what they do is caught, it's not taught. Mm, yes, so true. There are technical terms like trauma-informed care and ACEs scores that um, people in the medical field often talk about uh, ha that uh, trauma and trouble and, uh, and exposure to all sorts of things can have physical effects long term. But we in the inner city talk about addictions being a response to being disconnected from society, being disconnected from relationship, being disconnected from uh, people who you know love you and, and care for you. Are there things that parents can do? Uh, you know, Facebook is a connection to long-term relationships if it's done well, but it's also a connection to every detail on earth if you don't do it well. Uh, what, yes. what, are, uh, what are things you would encourage uh, parents to encourage their kids to connect with? That is such a great question, and you're right with ACEs, with adverse childhood experiences. We know that experiencing trauma as a child impacts our health as adults. It impacts our risk for heart attack and stroke and cancer and things we wouldn't even see coming. But I think building those healthy relationships is is the key forward because we know from research, too, that the 
best predictor of resilience for kids is having one meaningful connection to an adult. Now, this is so hard, Jim, because you you know as well as I do that it cannot be bought. It cannot be borrowed or stolen. It takes our most valuable commodity to invest, and that is our time. There is no easy way there, and it's very difficult for parents because Time is the thing that we're pressed for in a society that's going so quickly and we're pulled in multiple directions. That can be really difficult. So I think that the the best way for teens to have those healthy connections going forward is for us to help facilitate those. We have to intentionally lead them well in this space. And a lot of times for teens, when we seek out connection, you know, it's not like we'll say, oh, hey, I'd like to spend some time with you. And a teen will instantly say, oh, thank you so much. I've been waiting for you to ask that. What would you like to do, mother? <laughs> they, that, Thank you. They're like, Mom, oh, no. <laughs> and, and then it feels like we have rejection, you know, and we take that on. But we cannot do that as parents. We have to parent for the long game. We parent like we're growing chia pets. We just want to put in a little effort if there's a problem that comes up. And, hey, two days later, you're okay, right? But parenting is like growing a pineapple. It takes an average of 24 months for that to grow. And you still have to water it. You still have to put it in the sun. But most of all, most of all, you have to have confidence that that will grow. And that's what we have to do as parents, looking at our kids, not letting a singular behavioral struggle define the totality of their character. They need to see in our eyes. I have faith in you, that you are an amazing, extraordinary person who is going to mess up, who is going to have challenges, but I will be with you here beside you for the long haul, loving you no matter what. That's what kids need more than anything. We're having a great conversation with Dr. Jessica Peck. She is the author of a book called Behind Closed Doors, a guide to help parents and teens navigate through life's toughest issues. And we were really setting this this conversation, sitting in this mental health aspect of the generations that are coming up right now and how this is the issue at hand today. And then also our tie into social media, because as powerful as it is that we have this tool, this device in our hand that is far more powerful than the computers that put the rocket to the moon. Think about that. We have more capability in this palm-sized device than uh, we had even in our largest computing even 20, 30 years ago. And now that tool is what we place into the hands of our kids because we think we want to be in touch with them at any given time. And we give them the key to the kingdom. But the problem is the stuff inside the kingdom isn't all good. There's rooms that they should not be going into that have an effect. So, Dr. Peck, you know, we were talking about the fact that even in our own homes, these devices can become stumbling blocks. When Jesus was ministering, the most important person that he ministered to was whoever it was 
that was before him. And sometimes it was even the person behind him, because the woman who touched his garment, it doesn't say that she was in front of him or that she could even be seen. She was in the midst of a throng, and Jesus didn't know who it was, but he knew the power had gone out from him. And she became the most important person, the woman at the well, the the adulterous woman, the man with the withered hand. I mean, I can go on and on and on. The most important person was the one in front of them. And I am guilty of this. I will raise my hand as high as I can because (laughs) I've got, I am a married man with a wife who says, you're sitting next to me and you're not even (laughs) recognizing that I'm in the room with you. And we do that to each other. But you brought up the fact that this phone device and snubbing of people has given way to a new phrase, fubbing, P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G, where you are phone snubbing the other person who is in your sphere at that moment. And I can't imagine Jesus doing this. It's not really a all that godly behavior to phone snub someone. It really isn't. And you know, when we had old school social skills, we knew how to interact. And how many times have you, you know, Steve, I'll throw you under the bus here. How many times have you maybe been watching a sports game and your wife says, you're not listening to me? And our reaction is usually universal. We say, I am listening. And then we try to parrot back everything that they've just said to prove that we were indeed listening. But the point is the person doesn't feel heard. And it's easy for us as parents to finger point at our kids with their face in their phone. Get off your phone. Get off your phone. Get off your phone. We say this phrase. I know I'm guilty of saying that in my house. But yes, you're right. Fubbing is a new phenomenon. And we are guilty as parents of fubbing our teens. So how many times have you been at a school event, at a sporting game for kids where you see the tops of parents' heads and they're more engaged in their online life that isn't real and they're missing the life that happens right in front of them. So let me tell you an important biological thing that happens when we make eye contact with our kids. When we make eye contact, it actually makes their brain produce oxytocin which is a bonding chemical. It's the same chemical you would have excreted when a mother is nursing a baby. And they feel bonded to us. And when we don't look them in the eye, that automatically makes them feel biologically disconnected. And we haven't even gotten to the relational disconnection. So that is one of the things that I do in Behind Closed Doors is walk parents through how to start communication with their teens. If you feel like you're arguing all the time, you can't argue your way into right relationship. You can't leverage, you can't lecture to leverage behavioral change. And so the first communication step starts with listening. And what I encourage parents to do is to listen with your face. Whatever you're doing, if you're cooking, put it down. If I'm driving, I will pull over to the side of the road and and look my teen in the face and say, this sounds important. I want to make sure you have my full attention. We have to model that ourselves if we expect our teens to do it too. So true. My children are from age 31 down to 10. Uh, there are eight, four biological and four adopted. And um, and so we have this long stretch of history where 
television was very important in my family's house. You know, that thing running in the corner would get our <laughs> our family's <laughs> attention. And now everybody's got a personal device and and uh, what seems to need to happen is some things need put away at certain times. And uh, so I hear uh, commercials on uh, on uh, radio stations about the importance of caring for your teens and your family by having meals together. Uh, but you think it begins with just looking each other in the eye. So how do you put away uh, the devices for specific times? I hear you being conscious about it mm-hmm. When uh, when your uh, teen or or uh, child says, "I need your attention," or they're speaking in the moment, uh, but do you have some plans about how to do that as a regular part of your life? I do, Jim, and what I'm going to say is a little radical, I think, because I often hear parents say, "How much screen time should?" kids have. Well, really in pediatrics, we talked about limiting screen time to a specific number of hours, but COVID just completely threw that out the window. And I think instead of trying to be the phone police and constantly saying, get off your phone, you've had enough screen time, put your phone away and being restrictive, as parents, we need to work to find, to offer more compelling activities to substitute that. We need to make them want to join us. And, and you know, these things are actually pretty easy to do. So even at nighttime, sometimes I'll pop a snack in the oven. And I'm telling you, if kids smell pizza rolls, like they will come running. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you making pizza rolls at 8 o'clock at night? I'm, I'm just having a snack. They'll sit at the table. They'll join you. You know, if you are playing a family game together and there's laughter and people are having fun or even if you invite them to watch a show with you, I think that's what we really need to concentrate on is providing more compelling activities so that it's not a want to be on your phone. But we do, in my family, we do have specific guidelines. Mealtime is evidence-based, research-proven to decrease risk-taking behaviors in kids. Having meals together just twice a week makes kids less likely to be on their phone, to be sexting, to engage in drug use. I mean, the list goes on and on. But I think in this Pinterest world, we have this image of everything being perfect. Like, we have to make a gourmet meal and play jazz music with candles. You know, like, that is not going to happen. My family meals are often peanut butter and jelly around the island, but we're all connected. We're all together. We all usually do the highs and the lows, and we don't allow phones at the table. But my kids are usually the first to call me out if I try to pull my phone out. So giving them that opportunity to call me out and and say, this is not just for the kids, it's for us is important. Other tech-free zones in my house are the car. I love having a captive audience. And so when we're in the car together, that's a time we can talk. And my kids' bedroom. I want to say this one last thing about that because I was that mom. I established a rule that when kids came over to my house, they had to check in their phone at a charging station. Now, this was very shocking to them. They looked at me. They looked at my kids like, is your mom serious? (laughs) And I let them have access to their phone at any time, just not in my kid's bedroom. That is their most intimate, sacred space. They don't need a kid 
making a video on TikTok of going through their desk and saying, look what she has in her desk, you know, or videoing that sacred space. But I'll tell you, my house became pretty popular and they said, what are we going to do? I said, you're going to watch movies. You're going to have snacks. You're going to talk. And surprisingly, that was wildly popular. Yeah. It's like retro. Wow. Uh, winning um, being, by being creative, winning by um, being engaging. Oh, you mean we're better? We can be better than yeah. the system that's <laughs> yeah. available to us. That's great. Um, our, our house, uh, we're storytellers. And uh, so we have dinner together, um, uh, the kids who are still at, at home, and uh, that's sweet and dear. Uh, but then we take turns just telling stories together. But uh, yes, engaging. Oh, you've just encouraged us greatly to. Uh, imagine better. Yes, exactly. And I do want to say something really important to parents who are listening out there because when I hear about social media in my practice, the most common question I get is, how old should my kid be when I let them have social media? So I want to tell parents listening this really important tip. There is no set age Every kid is different and you should base it individually on responsibility and maturity. I, mean, I have one kid who could probably have managed my social media at the age of four and another that, I don't know, maybe they'll be 40. We'll have to wait and see. But the minimum age set by the Children's Online Privacy Act by federal law is 13. And guys, I see a lot of parents who give their children access to social media before that saying, hey, I watch them really closely. And my kid is really responsible. But the law doesn't make exception for vigilant parents and responsible kids. If you check that box that says, I'm 13, you're violating the terms of use. You're voiding any legal protection available to you should something bad happen online. And we're modeling that it's okay to break the rules and to be dishonest. So it shouldn't even be a conversation until age 13. And then after that, you really should look and see, do they have a really strong self-identity? Do they have good self-esteem? Because if they don't, social media is going to harm that exponentially. The other thing to look for is, do they have capacity for abstract thinking? Because if they're it's still in a developmental phase where you know our brains don't develop fully until their early 20s, and if they're still thinking about things very concretely, then that's how they're going to take social media risks online. If someone says, I'm a 14-year-old friend of a friend, they're going to think, oh, you're a 14-year-old friend of a friend, not hey, maybe you are not a nice person somewhere or someone I don't know, or maybe I should reason through this. And so that is a complex issue that parents should should deal with on an individual basis. But those are important things because social media is what takes our time. And so even starting that, the later that you can delay it, I promise you, promise you, the better off your kid will be. 
Well, those are very, very important things. You know, Dr. Peck, I could sit down and talk with you for days on end, but we have a clock. I know (laughs) you have a day to get to, and um, I am saddened by the fact that we have got to uh, hold the conversation over for the next time that we are able to connect and bring you on to the program. But I have to tell you that this is probably one of the most pressing matters that we have as a nation. Uh, and a vitally important conversation for us to have in our communities, in our churches, inside the four walls of our own home, because that is where rubber meets the road, and the things that we are putting into practice today will either harm us or help us in a decade from now, right? As as we see these generations leading, as we see them coming into uh, roles within our community, and it is important what we are doing today for the future of our family. Dr. Peck, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for this conversation, and I pray blessings upon blessings to every parent listening out there who's in the trenches. There is hope. I pray the Lord will bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace.